Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. We will continue to stand up ever stronger sanctions, but remember that those sanctions are aimed not at our allies, but at Putin and his cronies. And that's exactly uh, why we took this difficult decision to be there for our allies, to ensure that in Europe, not just governments, but populations stay steadfast and generous in their support of Ukraine and of the extremely important fight that President Zelensky and Ukrainians are leading, not just to defend their own territory, but to defend the underpinnings of our democracies. Okay, well, that was the Prime Minister late last week uh, defending this decision, which has been met with uh, frustration and anger in Ukraine. Ukraine's president has announced this decision, uh, said that he told Trudeau over the weekend that Ukrainians would never accept this decision. The decision is to return a turbine a turbine that is key uh, for this natural gas pipeline that runs from Russia uh, to Germany. So it's an odd situation that uh, a Russian pipeline to Germany would need to be repaired in Quebec. But those turbines were here. Returning those turbines to Russia certainly seems to undermine the whole point of these sanctions. So, yeah, look, there's some, some blame to go around to. I mean, obviously, Germany has pressed Canada and pressed Canada to return these turbines. That, that doesn't vindicate the decision. So it, it's unfortunate. I think that the damage is done here in terms of uh, our foreign policy and our commitment to uh, the efforts to, to try to contain Russia and, and try to make sure that these sanctions mean something. I think this is a win for Putin, unfortunately. Uh, joining us to talk about the decision, the consequences uh, of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Marcus Kulga, uh, founder of DisinfoWatch.org and a senior fellow with the McDonald Laurier Institute Center for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad. Marcus, good to have you with us here. Welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for having me on, Rob. All right. So your thoughts on how we got to this point and, and what you fear the implications are, are going to be? Well, look, we got to this point uh, over the past number of years. Uh, Germany and a number of our other European allies have um, blindly made themselves almost entirely dependent on Russian gas and oil. Uh, they facilitated the construction of the pipeline where this turbine was taken from and repaired from. It's called the Nord Stream Pipeline. It, it pipes natural gas directly from Russia's uh, high Arctic underneath the Baltic Sea and directly to Germany, bypassing Poland and Ukraine, um, so that uh, Vladimir Putin can use energy, can weaponize energy, and manipulate uh, his neighbors, uh, his enemies, uh, with, uh, with gas, uh, with the weaponization of this gas. So what essentially he's been doing to many of our Eastern European allies, including Ukraine, is uh, with one hand on the tap, you know, he, he closes it and opens it at, at, uh, on his whim in order to extract concessions uh, from those countries. And so those Eastern European countries have been seeing this and experiencing this for, for a number of years. Uh, and uh, now uh, Western European countries are experiencing this as well. And so this is, you know, given the, the way that the war has been going for Vladimir Putin, it's not going very well. He's made limited uh, gains in Eastern Ukraine and Southern Ukraine. He's now resorting, uh, last month he resorted to the weaponization of food, uh, you know, blackmailing the world by, by holding Ukrainian grain hostage. Now he's doing this with energy. 
And uh, about four weeks ago, uh, Russia uh, closed off the taps in the Nord Stream pipeline. They have blamed Canada and a single turbine. There are eight turbines altogether that this system, the Nord Stream pipeline, uses. One of those turbines has been in Canada for repairs. Um, it doesn't account for the 60% drop in, uh, the, in the gas that's running through the pipeline. And in fact, uh, just the other week, Russia c- cut off all supplies moving through the, through the pipeline, again, blaming Canada for it. So, um, you know, this is false. Canada's, uh, that one turbine did not cause that drop in, uh, in the flow of gas. There are also alternatives that exist. There are still pipelines that transit Poland and Ukraine, so that gas can always get to Germany. And what it appears uh, like right now is that um, that Canada has fallen victim to Russia's intimidation and uh, and energy blackmail. We've been duped essentially into believing that we were the cause of this problem when it was Vladimir Putin all along. And as you mentioned, um, the ultimate winner in all of this is Vladimir Putin. And the big loser is Canada because our own sanctions policy, our foreign policy, our defense policy, and certainly our our friendship with Ukraine has been damaged, and all of that has been compromised at this point. So um, it's not a good day. I think that Canada uh, still has an opportunity to rescind that uh, certificate, that carve-out in our sanctions policy for Vladimir Putin and Gazprom, and to make sure that future turbines aren't uh, refurbished here in Canada, and that uh, Russia simply has to find someone else and someplace else to, to refurbish and, and repair those turbines. But it can't be done here because those pipelines are used uh, directly by Vladimir Putin to fund the war that he's committing, that he's uh, waging against Ukraine right now. Yeah, because it seems like this this agreement is is much uh, more far-reaching than the government initially indicated. It's not just about one turbine. I think there's there's as many as, as six that could be re-exported. Uh, and this is an arrangement that will cover a two-year period. So even though that, that first turbine has already been, been sent, uh, you know, there's still an opportunity to, to rescind all the rest of this, isn't there? Yeah, that, and that's a good point, Rob. Um, as I mentioned earlier, this is this pipeline is the primary source of revenue for the for the Putin regime. Um, nearly half of all of Russia's revenues depend on the sale of gas and oil. Europe is one of its largest customers, and you know we know that the war is costing Vladimir Putin right now one billion dollars a day. But we also know that the gas that he is selling through that pipeline brings in revenues of at least $1 billion a day. And so by repairing these turbines, we are directly enabling Vladimir Putin's ability to raise those funds. And you know, I spoke with Gary Kasparov, the, the Russian uh, chess master, just last week for a piece that I wrote for the Toronto Star. And Gary told me that you know by sending this turbine back and having this agreement for the next two years, we may as well be sending missiles and bombs directly to the, to the Putin regime. Um, that's how serious this is. And it's one reason why, you know, the primary reason why we need to uh, reconsider that decision, uh, ASAP, and make sure that that uh, certificate is revoked. Yeah, some of the damage is done, but I think we can still mitigate some some further damage here. There's an interesting point raised by a couple of colleagues of yours, uh, an op-ed in the Globe and Mail today, that, you know, if we're so concerned about the energy crisis in Europe, you know, maybe a more productive way of addressing that is not to, to return infrastructure to, to help Russia, but to actually help replace that Russian energy. We're not really focusing on, on that side of it, right? If we want to get these European countries yeah. less reliant on Russia, we could play a role in that. You're absolutely right. And I think you and I have talked about this. We talked about this a couple of years ago. I brought it up in a, in a couple of pieces back then when we were looking at Canadian energy and, and the 
the problems that Europe we back then that we we thought that it might have with with energy. And indeed, um, you know, we've over the past five months now we've heard European leaders, um, the, the the president of France, Emmanuel Macron, has actually uh, just about a month and a half ago directly uh, asked for Canada to step up its uh, development of infrastructure to get gas to uh, to Europe because you know most European leaders right now are uh, are now beginning to understand how dangerous that their over-dependence on Russian gas has become. It has become a political tool, and as I mentioned earlier, Vladimir Putin weaponizes energy. Um, Canadian energy is safe. It's reliable. Um, the resistance to building pipelines and LNG terminals on our on the Atlantic coast to export that that gas to Europe. Um, the resistance to that is, um, I, I don't quite understand it. Um, this is something that we need to start taking a look at immediately uh, because ultimately Europe's energy security is also part of our own energy, our own uh, security policy. Um, those are our NATO members. And if they're able to be manipulated through the weaponization of energy, it, it undermines them and it undermines our own security policy. So it's in our national interest. Um, to start building these, these gas pipelines uh, out to the East Coast immediately so that we can get that gas to our allies. In the meantime, I mean, you know, the timing of this is most unfortunate. I mean, you, you alluded to the situation on the ground in, in Ukraine. It feels like we're at a bit of a tipping point. And, and increasingly, the stories that have emerged, the brutality that we're, we're seeing from, from Russian forces is is reaching new heights. It, it's, it's kind of frightening where things are at and how far Putin's prepared to go here, isn't it? Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, it has become primarily a war of terror. Uh, you know, the Russian advances in the east and in the south have ground to a halt. And the primary targets right now for, for Russian artillery and for the missiles and, and bombs that are falling from aircraft are civilian infrastructure. And this is, unfortunately, you know, the, the war in Ukraine has fallen you know, largely off the, the Western media radar. Um, and that's opened up this opportunity for Putin to just increase that that war of terror against the Ukrainian people. Things are not getting any better for them. They're, they're only getting worse. And, and uh, what, uh, you know, I think that Vladimir Putin is trying to do right now is to um, to try and extract some sort of a concession, a ceasefire uh, from the from the Ukrainians. Uh, he is doing all that he can. I think that this uh, this decision to send the turbine uh, back is is part of this entire grand scheme. It's designed to wear down Western resolve uh, and to try and, again, get Western governments to return to a business-as-usual position with, with Russia. And, and it's in Putin's benefit to, uh, to have a stalemate, uh, to preserve the status quo right now, to freeze the conflict as it is. Um, he can declare victory at home then. Uh, but the Ukrainian people will continue to suffer because the terror will continue even if there is a ceasefire. We know that Vladimir Putin doesn't uh, honor his agreements and his treaties. And so uh, we're at a very critical juncture right now. We need to send more weapons uh, and continue sending weapons and send more weapons to Ukraine so that it, it can stop Vladimir Putin, so that it does have a fighting chance to push Vladimir Putin back to the uh, to the Russian border. That's the only way that we're going to win this thing, because if this ends in, in a stalemate, and if we continue compromising uh, on our positions, uh, it will only lead to further aggression from Vladimir Putin uh, down the road, and then a year's down the road, because let's not forget, he's going to be in power for at least another 10 to 20 years. So this is going to be an ongoing problem if we don't take care of it now. Indeed. We'll leave it there for now. Marcus, always appreciate the inside. Much more at uh, disinfowatch.org and uh, mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Uh, Marcus, thanks again for joining us here today. Appreciate it.
Thanks for having me on, Rob. All the best. Uh, Marcus Kolga, uh, founder of DisinfoWatch.org, senior fellow of the McDonald laurier Institute Center for Canada, advancing Canada's interest abroad. This is not a decision that in any way advances Canada's interest abroad, quite the opposite. There's some real damage done to the relationship with Ukraine which is most unfortunate. Now, we did get a tweet yesterday from uh, Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky. He did speak with Justin Trudeau yesterday. Uh, He says, quote, spoke to Justin Trudeau, thanked uh, him for the continued powerful defense support, reiterated that the international position on sanctions must be principled. After the terrorist attacks in uh, various Ukrainian communities, he says the pressure must be increased, not decreased. So being diplomatic here, but the underlying message is pretty clear. The, the statement that uh, Zelensky posted last week didn't mince any words. They were really upset about this. And we saw protests over the weekend uh, from the Ukrainian-Canadian community denouncing this decision. The Ukrainian World Congress has suggested uh, it might even try to, to look at uh, whether there could be a lawsuit filed against the federal government. I think we're going to see this as a big mistake. I think, frankly, you can already see it as a big mistake by the Canadian government. So there's still an opportunity here to to mitigate any further damage. His death, however it came by, does take a lot more of the secrets that he had uh, to the grave and which we will never know about. Well, that's the voice of uh, Deepak Kandawal, lost two of his sisters in the bombing of Air India Flight 182, a terrorist attack that occurred 35 years ago. One of the people who was charged but later acquitted for involvement in the Air India Flight 182 bombing was Raputaman Singh Malik, a controversial figure uh, in the Sikh community, uh, someone who has been previously uh, associated with Sikh separatism, seems to have more recently had a change of heart in those matters, but somebody who clearly had a lot of enemies, as mentioned, was charged in connection with the, the bombing, acquitted in 2005 found not guilty along with another uh, accused last week Raputaman Singh Malik was killed was shot to death in what almost seemed like a, a gangland style execution so who killed Raputaman Singh Malik and why is there any connection to the Air India bombing 35 years ago and as you heard uh, in that clip uh, a lot has gone to the grave with him about what happened well somebody who has uh, covered this uh, literally for decades uh, kim boland is a uh, crime uh, reporter with the vancouver sun also author of the book loss of faith how the air india bombers got away with murder kim boland great to have you with us here this afternoon welcome to the program thanks for having me i mean you were threatened i guess that was about 25 years ago or so uh for for covering reputman singh malik he had his enemies but obviously he had his supporters so your connection with him this story goes back many years what, what was your reaction first of all to what happened last week i was really shocked and you know i cover organized crime now so i cover a lot of very similar murders where someone is targeted and a vehicle is later found burning uh likely a vehicle that's been stolen and then used by uh hitman to to take someone out so i'm used to covering that and yet when i started getting calls from sources saying this targeted murder in surrey is of and it was literally that mallet guy and i go what Malik guy? Mm-hmm. You don't mean we're putting him in saying Malik. Yeah, that one. And I, I, I was shocked. I mean, targeted murders don't usually involve 75-year-old victims, for starters, even if the person is as controversial as Mr. Malik was. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, it's easy enough to imagine 
you know, someone wanting to kill him. And, and he had a lot of enemies for a lot of different reasons, but just that it happened or that it happened now is, is what's so shocking about it then, right? Well, that is, but I really don't believe this has anything to do with Air India right. and the Air India families or even the Air India investigation. I think this has to do with things uh, somewhat more recently. Uh, he was a businessman. Even in business, he was controversial, facing a number of lawsuits uh, from people who he had disputes with. Mm-hmm. And he was still involved in Sikh politics. And um, he had, you know, sent this letter to the Indian Prime Minister in January, basically offering support for United India and thanking Prime Minister Modi for steps he had taken to make amends for outstanding Sikh grievances. So that was really sort of a direct turnaround by Mr. Malakut once had been a leader of the Khalistan movement, the movement for an independent Sikh nation. Uh, as I said in my book, he had financed Talvinder Singh Parmar. Uh, you know, I talked to Parmar's brother for my book, who, who witnessed Malik committing hundreds of thousands of dollars to Parmar for the movement. Barbara Kels is a banned terrorist organization. So even though the evidence fell short in getting him convicted for the actual bombing plot, there was certainly a lot of links between him and some of the minority of violent separatists that we had operating in Canada at the time. Well, and, and the fact that he's maybe, you know, changed his views on, on the whole separatist question. I mean, what, what does that represent in terms of the, the whole movement itself and, and what existed in, in 1985 versus, you know, what still exists now? Well, I think it's important to point out that the vast majority of Sikhs in Canada, uh, you know, their idea of politics is who's running for, you know, their local member of parliament here in Canada. They're very involved in the political system in this country. They see themselves primarily as Canadians, and that's what they're committed um, to participating in. But there is still a separatist movement that operates uh, here in British Columbia and other parts of Canada, and, uh, you know, some of them are speaking out about issues in India. Some of them are still indicating their support from uh, for a movement that at times uh, had violence attached to it, right? But there's also a lot of others who would like to see a separate seat country in India that don't support violence. So I think we really have to be careful about what we're saying here, saying about, you know, the Khalistan movement and, and Sikhs and other South Asians in Canada. Uh, Having said that, some would be very upset by this guy's apparent betrayal of something that he once supported, right? Mm-hmm. So would they be upset enough to arrange for him to be killed? That's hard to say at this point in time. You know, I also find from covering gangland murders that sometimes there's more than one motive, mm-hmm. right? Could it be both? Uh, could it be somehow linked to him relinquishing his support for the Khalistan movement as well as having, you know, burned someone in a business deal, you know, potentially. But it does look like uh, these shooters were hired um, just by the whole way they, they conducted this murder. You know, a car that was found burning. They were clearly casing his office. Sometimes uh, in the gangland murders, uh, we find that uh, the the people that are doing the murder have a tracker on someone's car and are therefore able to follow them on a computer. But given that uh, these shooters were sort of circling around his office building up to two hours prior to the murder. That suggests that, you know, they were just casing the place and waiting for him to arrive. I feel like that means they didn't have a lot of direct information about when he would be arriving. 
Very interesting. Now, you know, we, we played the clip of uh, one of the family members uh, who lost two, two sisters in the Air India bombing. I mean, 35 years later, there's still a lot of questions about uh, what happened, and, and families want answers. Uh, whether Raputam and Singh Malik was killed in, in any way related to the uh, Air India bombing, obviously we don't know at this point, but is it fair to say that he, he does take a lot uh, of knowledge, a lot of secrets to the grave with him? Oh, without a doubt. Having said that, I don't think he ever would have spilled those secrets. I think that his newfound love for United India has more to do with his business interests, which extend to India, and, and also with the fact that the Indian government granted him a visa in 2019 to return to the country where he was born. And so he wanted to maintain those relationships for other reasons. Uh, so I don't think, I mean, his uh, whole... You know, um, stick has been, I had nothing to do with Air India, right? His son has been repeating that recently. His son actually said to the media, well, my father was wrongfully charged, even though the trial judge in the case said years later, no, he was not wrongfully charged. And while I acquitted him, I did not find him innocent, right? So, you know, they have really been pushing the line that because he was acquitted, because the criminal threshold of evidence wasn't met, that meant he had nothing to do with it, when in fact there's all kinds of other things that were determined uh, by that trial and by the subsequent public inquiry into the Air India investigation. You know, it's interesting. I mean, you know, only one person was ever convicted, uh, in connection with the Air India bombing, and that was a, a charge of manslaughter against Indrajit uh, Rayat. Obviously, uh, Mr. Malik was facing much more serious charges uh, at his trial. Why is it that we, we only ever got that one conviction on, on a much less serious charge? I mean, this kind of gets to the whole crux of your book and some of those questions you've been examining over the years, but, but how did we end up at that point? Well, I mean, there were problems with the investigation, without a doubt, uh, you know, as came out and was uh, thoroughly examined by the public inquiry. Uh, CSIS was a brand new organization. There was some, um, you know, lack of information sharing between CSIS and the RCMP. Uh, CSIS destroyed, you know, um, hours and hours of audio recordings of some of the suspects chatter prior to the bombing that impacted the investigation without a doubt now CISA said it's because their role was different and they weren't supposed to be turning things over for criminal investigations because they were intelligence gathering at the time but those roles have you know shifted and been improved over the years the the whole information sharing was a big problem and then there was just the fact that you know Canada had never experienced anything like this like a homegrown terrorist movement, if you will. And so when there were lots of threats against Air India as India's national airline, many of them were ignored or not taken that seriously, right? So, you know, there were so many ways this could have been prevented in the first place. Um, and I think that was one of the main themes that came out of the public inquiry. But then after the terrible bombing happened and so many lives were devastated, um, the investigation had flaws as well. Uh, you know, it, the, at the time, the RCMP had very few Punjabi language speakers, you know, so how are you able to communicate with people in the community if you don't even know their, their main language in many cases, right? So that, and then, you know, once there were people that were willing to come forward and be witnesses in the case, it took a long time. They had a lot of fear. A lot of witnesses had been threatened over the years. Well, then we had the murder, the assassination of Tara Singh Hare, who was going to be a key witness in the case. And, you know, can imagine the ripple effects of something like that happening. Someone who may have information about these suspects, 
may want to do the right thing and come forward, and then they see a very high-profile person who is going to be a witness gunned down at his own home while he was already in a wheelchair from a previous shooting. So not only did that mean uh, he didn't get to be a witness at this case, you know, he might have been the witness that changed the judge's mind, right? The judge did have statements from Tara Hare and decided that they were inadmissible as evidence, right? So I think almost every witness who did testify at that trial for the Crown had received threats uh, and talked about that on the stand. And then there were uh, there was one witness in particular uh, against uh, Ajab Bagri, not Malik per se, uh, and she was terrified. The judge ruled she was terrified, and as a result, she kind of feigned memory loss. So, you know, there were problems throughout that trial. Um, and some of those were examined, revisited by the Air India Inquiry. Having said that, I don't know if we'd do any better today prosecuting a terrorism case. All right. Well, in the meantime, uh, police uh, have a mystery to solve here. Uh, just quickly, had any sense uh, of where this investigation is going or where police at? Do they have any leads based on, on what they've been saying or what you've heard? Well, they have. They definitely have leads about uh, they know who owned the vehicle that ended up being used by the shooters and burned. Uh, I don't think that person suspected of being involved. Uh, I know that they're looking at all avenues at this point in time. You know, the possibility that it was related to Sikh politics, uh, but also, you know, the possibility that it was related to some kind of personal dispute that Mr. Malik had with someone. All the latest uh, at VancouverSun.com. Kim, really appreciate this. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today. My pleasure. All the best. Uh, that is Kim Boland, veteran uh, journalist with the Vancouver Sun, author of the book Loss of Faith, How the Air India Bombers Gone Away with Murder. And, I mean, clearly they did. One individual connected or convicted, rather, of manslaughter in a terrorist attack that claimed hundreds of lives. Raputamin Singh Malik was charged with murder and conspiracy but was acquitted. So it, that, that's a fact. Uh, the, the Crown did not make the case sufficiently against Raputaman Singh Malik. But the evidence is overwhelming that, that he was, you know, in, in, at least in the sphere of those who were involved in that. He clearly knew a lot about what had happened, even if he was not actively involved. And certainly there's compelling evidence that he was. So he doesn't know a lot or did know a lot. Maybe he never was going to to share any of that. It's hard to know. Uh, but at this point, he never will. So gunned down last week at the age of 75. And so, yeah, the question, why him? Why now? And a lot of different potential motives now the police are going to have to look into. There's obviously the connection to the uh, Air India bombing, or at least, you know, that militant Sikh separatist movement, such as it is. But obviously a controversial figure in the business community. Controversial figure even in the Sikh community itself. Uh, something else he had done recently that, that had caused some controversy was to uh, republish uh, the Sikh holy book outside uh, of India, which is uh, something that's seen as a no-no. It, it's uh, a religious edict that that book not be published or printed outside of India. So something that he did. That angered some people. Could that have been a factor at this point? Uh, we're just speculating. It's a really interesting case and quite a mystery now for police to solve. The Air India bombing, for all intents and purposes, went unsolved. The murder of Tara Singh Hayer, uh, that Kim alluded to, that went unsolved. Is this going to break that trend?
Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Ridge with you here on this uh, Tuesday afternoon. Our number 403-974-8255. Much more still to get to. There's been a lot of scrutiny recently of Hockey Canada uh, and its operations, more specifically how it deals with claims of sexual assault. There's been a lot of backlash against Hockey Canada in its handling of an alleged sexual assault in 2018, which allegedly involved uh, a number of members of the 2018 Canadian World Junior Team. With government money on hold and some sponsors pausing their relationship, Hockey Canada has tried to reset on this. They've reopened the investigation, and maybe we'll see some meaningful change in how all of this is dealt with. Uh, some other disturbing things have come to light, though, in all of this. For example, Hockey Canada has acknowledged that they have dealt with an average of one to two sexual assault cases a year over the past six years. The questions that's emerged in the settling of this lawsuit in 2018 is where that three and a half million dollars came from because it didn't come from insurance money. Now, this speaks to to Hockey Canada's operations. Now, if you have a kid who plays hockey and kids who play hockey right across the country, a portion of your registration fees goes to Hockey Canada. A report in the Globe and Mail today uh, looks at one of the ways in which Hockey Canada has used that money to build up a fund, a fund that is uh, in excess of $15 million, or at least has been in recent years, and that can be deployed to cover the costs of these sorts of settlements. It's what's known as the National Equity Fund. It's the subject of a Globe and Mail investigative report. You can read at theglobeandmail.com. Uh, joining us on the line here this afternoon is the uh, author of that piece, Globe and Mail reporter Grant Robertson joining us on the line here this afternoon, theglobeandmail.com for much more. As mentioned, Grant, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So uh, let's talk about this fund that Hockey Canada has acknowledged its existence, the National Equity Fund, but not much is known publicly about this fund. So what, what are we able to deduce at this point, first of all? Mm-hmm. Yeah, as, as you point out, one of the big questions from the hearings that Hockey Canada appeared at in Ottawa last month was, how did they cover the settlement? Now, we don't know specifically the amount of the settlement. We know the lawsuit was $3.5 million, but we don't know what it was actually settled for. But at the hearings, Hockey Canada was, their focus was on telling the government, look, no federal money went into the settlement, and they were telling their sponsors soon after no sponsorship money went into the settlement. And the big question of those hearings was, as you point out, why didn't insurance cover this? And if, if it didn't, where did the money come from? Now, what they said at the hearings was, well, we sold some of our investments to cover the settlement. And there wasn't a lot of clarity. They were really skirting around the answer, not giving much detail on how, how they would have paid this particular settlement. What's come out is that essentially there is um, a series of funds within Hockey Canada, and there's one specific fund that it's used for a variety of purposes, but one of those purposes is to... Uh, cover uh, sexual assault claims that are not covered by insurance, that are handled without the involvement of the insurance company. Now, that raises a lot of questions, which, um, as you point out, it surprised a lot of people at the hearings that they're dealing with this many situations that might require settlements or that might result in claims. And um, how are these being paid out? And how, how much... Uh, of this fund is is being used to settle claims, and where's that money coming from? Now, what we're able to find out is that the money that goes into this fund comes from the uh, fees that you would pay on your Hockey Canada registration, 
there's about a $23 fee that they place right now uh, on every registration. This is from Timbits Hockey right up to your beer league, which covers you for insurance. And there's various kinds of insurance that they have. You know, there's emergency medical and dental. There's liability insurance for injuries. And some of that money goes into this fund, which is used to cover social assault settlements. And I think that's surprising a lot of people. You know, especially, you know, parents and players who this hasn't been disclosed necessarily to them by Hockey Canada, that this is where some of your money goes. It's interesting. As you point out in your piece, though, you know, that we, there's not a lot we've known about this one previously because Hockey Canada seems to have gone out of its way to really avoid talking about it. Uh, there was um, mm-hmm. some audited financial statements from 2015 that you obtained. There was also mm-hmm. an affidavit from, from an injury lawsuit that Hockey Canada actually tried to have removed from the, the court records. So we're able to start mm-hmm. piecing this together, right, uh, from little bits here and there. Right. Yeah, existence of the fund shows up in court documents for an unrelated case. It's a lawsuit about um, a player who who was injured after um, being hit into the boards and his leg is partially paralyzed now. So, uh, and, and, and their insurance isn't, uh, they're, they're suing Hockey Canada for, for the insurance coverage they believe they're deserved. Now, in that, a Hockey Canada executive testified um, in an affidavit about all of the various kind of insurance they, they carry and how extensive it is. And in that, he said, you know, not all, essentially he said, you know, not only do they carry insurance for liabilities, um, they also carry uh, a fund for sexual assault claims outside of insurance. Um, and that, I think, raised a lot of eyebrows. Um, you know, when we saw it the first time and when the lawyers in that case saw it the first time, because it hinted at funds that people didn't necessarily know about. And once you know the name of the fund, you can see references to it in, for example, the audited financial statements. You can see references to it um, in places like that. But you don't see it dis- disclosed in the places, you know, anywhere on Hockey Canada's website, from what we can tell. Um, in the handbook they provide to parents on here's where your insurance money goes, here's where your fees go. Um, the, the existence of the fund seems to have existed in the background with very little disclosure from Hockey Canada. Which is fascinating. Now, we know of the, the $3.5 million settlement from 2018. I guess we don't know at this point, do we, whether that money, part of it or all of it, came out of this fund? Are, are we able to draw that connection yet? We know that they sold investments, and we know that this fund uh, is an investment fund. Uh, so in addition to pulling money in for sexual assault claims, um, they also take... Uh, what would be the balance of that and invest it, um, uh, is my understanding, in um, stocks, bonds, other investment vehicles, and they earn interest and uh, investment returns on that year to year. So it grows its balance that way and through funds. And and that's an investment fund. And at the hearings, they said, um, we sold investments to pay for this. And um, after approaching them about this fund, about the National Equity Fund, as it's called within Hockey Canada. They acknowledge to me that, yes, this fund exists, and yes, it's used for sexual assault claims, in addition to a variety of other things. It's not solely for that purpose, but this is one of its purposes. And uh, so um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's going to be interesting at the upcoming hearings, the level of detail they provide now, now that some of this is coming out, because at the first set of hearings last month, 
they provided very little detail and almost looked like they're making an effort to provide as little detail as possible. At least that's what MPs on the committee say. Right. That's the thing. I mean, the 2018 settlement we're aware of, but what, that's the thing when it comes to these settlements is they're not often public knowledge. So I guess at this point, really, we really don't know, do we, how many cases Hockey Canada has settled, how much uh, has been paid out from this fund in, in any of those settlements, do we? That's the upshot. I've asked them for detail on that. I've asked them um, several times uh, for, for more details on this fund, how it's used, how they define an uninsurable liability, why this case wasn't handled through insurance, why it was paid out. Another interesting thing about this, about this settlement is um, I think a lot, of, a lot of impartial observers would look at the time frame on the settlement um, and say this was settled very quickly. Um, it's about three weeks from when Hockey Canada said at the hearings they received the statement of claim to when the Minister of Sport was informed that the settlement was reached. So three weeks or less, this was settled in. Now, in my article today, I draw a comparison to the other case, the injury case where this fund uh, emerged in, in, in the affidavit. Well, that case, uh, Hockey Canada has been fighting for seven years in terms of not wanting to pay out the, the injury money the, that the player argues he's entitled to um, for his injury. But this one was settled in, in less than three weeks. And I think there's a lot of people looking at that and saying there's... There's a clear difference between those two time frames. Very interesting. Well, much more is mentioned at theglobeandmail.com. Grant, thanks so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much. All the best. Uh, Grant Robertson, a senior writer with Globe and Mail, theglobeandmail.com. So uh, an interesting scoop today on the existence of this fund and what we can say with certainty about it at this point. Why has Hockey Canada been so secretive about this? Uh, I guess that point, uh, that question is, is still unanswered at this point. Uh, but I suspect, as he says, we're going to learn more at uh, some further upcoming hearings. And I think Hockey Canada has realized that how they've approached all of this uh, needs to change. It's no longer sustainable. I think that that house of cards has started to collapse. And you look at the reaction from the federal government. You look at the reaction from some key sponsors. You look at the public reaction. I think Hockey Canada is seeing the writing on its wall and uh, realizing that, that something's got to change here. Uh, but in doing so, it may reveal... Some further uncomfortable truths about claims that have come up, claims that have been settled, money that's been paid out, and how that was dealt with. Certainly, this case in 2018 has raised some troubling questions. Well, good afternoon, Alberta. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you on this Monday afternoon. You can reach us in Edmonton, 780-496-0063, in Calgary, 403-974-8255. Plenty to get to over the course of this hour. Let's begin, though, with the latest look at where things stand in terms of Alberta's economic recovery. The latest Alberta snapshot from the Business Council of Alberta uh, has some some optimism, to be sure, about where we're at. Uh, That this is uh, more than just a return, they say, uh, to 2019 levels. That we're seeing a meaningful recovery in Alberta. That our GDP levels uh, should be back above pre-pandemic levels by the end of this year. Uh, so we're seeing some positive things happening. At the same time, though, you know, we're not yet back to boom times uh, of the past, like 2014, for example. So we see some big differences still between those previous boom times and what we're going through right now. And yes, there are some storm clouds on the horizon. Obviously, inflation weighs heavy. Uh, the monetary policy response to inflation uh, is having an impact. And, and yeah, the concern about uh, inflation as well, even specific to Alberta. 
we've got some challenges in terms of labor demand and being able to address some of the labor shortages that exist. That affects our, our productivity. Uh, so all of this is mentioned in the latest Alberta Snapshot, Business Council of Alberta. You can find them on the web at businesscouncilab.com. Uh, joining us to talk more about this uh, latest report, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Alicia Planitschit, who is uh, with the Business Council of Alberta, the Manager of Policy and Economics. Alicia, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Great to be here. So let's let's talk about the positive, and there's a lot of positive in, in this report. Uh, you know, clearly Alberta is going through a recovery, that, that, that much is clear, but what are we seeing in terms of getting back to 2019 levels, maybe even surpassing 2019 levels? When we look at GDP, when we look at unemployment, for example. Yeah, sure. So uh, your overview at the top was really good. I think uh, the biggest, most exciting thing with this update is we can now say that Alberta has actually caught up with other provinces. For a long time, we were really lagging behind other provinces in recovery. Now, I would say not only have we caught up, there are some indicators that would say we're actually in even a stronger position um, than elsewhere in Canada. One of those really good indicators is actually private sector jobs growth. So um, we've seen more of that than any other province. And we're hearing from our member businesses that over half of them are expecting to increase employment over the next year. Even in the midst of all that uncertainty and all of the issues that you uh, brought up in your intro there. And I think one other thing that I'll add that's really good news and is maybe a little bit surprising is that um, this growth in employment is really broad based. So it's not just about hard hit industries uh, related to COVID, like restaurants and hotels. It's not just about the resources sector, but it's really across a range of different industries that we're seeing this growth. So another really good sign for the province um, for the next couple of years. So 4.9% is, is the latest unemployment rate for Alberta. So yeah, we, we haven't seen that rate, I think, going back, what, about five years then? Yeah, it's it's pretty incredible to see a rate of 5% unemployment. Um, and the great news, too, is it's not just you know, certain uh, individuals or certain professions that are really benefiting. It's really uh, across the board, all the demographics of ages and genders that we have data for. We're seeing a huge improvement uh, versus versus the last couple of months and versus even uh, 2019. We just have a much stronger labor market, which uh, is really, really good news for the province and for um, individual Albertans. Right. So in, in some ways, it, it resembles a boom, but this isn't, you know, what we've seen in the past. I guess 2014 would be the most uh, recent comparable in terms of a, a previous boom cycle. What, what do we see as the differences now? Why is this not 2014? Yeah, so I think that's a super important to make point to make is, you know, this isn't the economy of 2019. It's, it's much stronger than that, but it's also not the economy of 2014 and before the, um, the oil price collapse either for a couple of reasons. You know, the one big indicator that we're used to seeing when we see oil prices this high is we see huge amounts of capital investment. And while we are seeing certainly an increase in that activity, uh, we're not seeing near the levels that we were seeing in 2014. So maybe 40% of the new cash flow coming in is dedicated to, you know, getting new projects online, whereas 2014, that percentage was something like 150%. So a huge difference in what businesses are using that money for. Partly because, you know, we've had several years of really low prices. So businesses are, you know, paying down their debt. They're increasing returns to investors. 
but also because of the long-term uncertainty, right, of, you know, what does it look like a couple of years from now? We have high oil prices now. How long is this going to last? Lots of policy decisions being made at the uh, national level and, and uh, uh, international even as well. So that's one of the big differences, I would say, versus the booms of the past is we're not seeing that same capital investment. That's interesting because, you know, prices are obviously uh, quite high right now. There seems to be some incentive for those kinds of investments. Is, is it just that trepidation, you know, given what we've gone through the, the past few years? Or are there, are there other factors holding back those kinds of decisions? Yeah, so I think it's, uh, yeah, as I was saying, the last few years and just, uh, you know, keeping in mind that it was only a couple of years ago that we saw oil prices what going into the negatives. Um, and even before that, before the pandemic, we've seen several very lean years for the industry. Uh, makes these really high revenues and profits a little bit different than in the past. So I think it's partly, um, you know, thinking about how are we still recovering from those lean years, but also, like I was saying, that uncertainty of of the future of what policy looks like, of what the low carbon uh, transition looks like, of what, um, you know, their issues of regulation. So there are all these kind of longer term concerns on the horizon, which I think has businesses being a little bit more fiscally conservative than uh, we would typically see in the past. We, we talked about unemployment, which is, uh, you know, again, just under 5%. Uh, you know, we have to go back to 2017 to find a number that low. Uh, that, that's a good problem to have, but that does come with some challenges, as noted in this report. We've got a lot of uh, labor shortages, so between low unemployment and, and an aging workforce, uh, that creates some, some challenges for businesses, uh, you know, to keep productivity levels where they need to be. So w- what kind of challenges does that present for businesses, for the economy moving forward here? Yeah, so as I was saying, most businesses are, you know, they want to hire more people. They want to expand their operations over the next year in Alberta. Uh, But over three quarters of our CEOs are telling us that they simply cannot find enough workers or individuals with the right skills that they need uh, to meet that demand. And so, I mean, one important point to make is this isn't something that's specific to Alberta. It's something that uh, across the nation, um, all businesses are facing right now. And I think one thing we need to keep in mind with this issue is it's it's really beyond a COVID issue. This is a longer term challenge that's just only going to get worse as the population ages, as individuals increasingly retire. And so, you know, a part of the solution, I think Alberta businesses are doing a really good job of drawing individuals from other provinces. So we're seeing folks move from other provinces to Alberta, which is great. But longer term, we're going to have to think about, you know, how do, how do we help businesses to increase productivity, um, to use AI, to use software and apps and, and these sorts of things that really cut down on the need for labor alone. Now, it's, as much as the Alberta economy is doing well at the moment, we, we alluded to some of the, you know, the storm clouds on the horizon, the inflation's having an impact, clearly, you know, monetary policy response, you know, there's some concern, for example, higher, higher interest rates could really hit the housing sector hard, you know, there are concerns about a, a recession maybe looming, so how is all of this impacting Alberta? Yeah, it's, it's having a big impact on Albertans. In fact, I think one thing that's important to know about Albertans is they're really um, having a harder time with the with the cost of living, and it's 
it's not that prices are increasing any faster anymore in Alberta. It's simply that most Albertans have not seen the same amount of wage growth as we've seen in other provinces. And so because of that, uh, you know, we all feel a little bit poorer, frankly, than we did a couple of years ago. So I think um, this is definitely a big challenge. The good news is the last couple of months we've started to see a little bit of wage growth, uh, more so in Alberta than other provinces. So I think we'll start to see that gap close. Um, but as of right now, you know, even the latest survey data shows the number one issue among Albertans is inflation. So it's, it's definitely a big concern. And I think, uh, you know, there's probably a role for not only the Bank of Canada, but also the government of Alberta of making sure that we're seeing people through to the other side, especially folks who are, um, you know, most vulnerable to those increases in food costs and energy costs, etc. We start to see an economic slowdown and, you know, we've seen the price of oil drop a little bit recently on, on those kinds of concerns. I mean, how well positioned is Alberta to to absorb some of that? Yeah, so do you mean to absorb a, a potential recession or... Yeah, yeah, to sort of, you know, shield itself against the impacts of a slowdown. Yeah, I mean, so, I, you know, the sort of good news for us is that so long as commodity prices stay high, there is a little bit of an offsetting factor that I think other provinces and jurisdictions uh, don't have. But, um, you know, at the same time, I would say that the challenge for Albertans is... You know, Bank of Canada is going big to decrease the effect of inflation, which, as you say, could lead to a recession. But the reality is that that's going to be a very slow process. And so Albertans are going to be dealing with higher prices uh, for quite a while. Um, And so I think that's really the biggest challenge more so than um, any sort of impending potential recession. Much more, as mentioned, businesscouncilab.com, the latest Alberta snapshot. Alicia, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate this. Thanks for having me. All the best. Uh, Alicia Polinichik, who is uh, manager of economic, uh, rather policy and economics with the Business Council of Alberta, talking about their latest snapshot. So, see a lot of positives. As they note, Alberta shows the strongest private sector growth of large provinces, increasing employment uh, 3.1% versus pre-COVID levels. Higher energy prices are putting money into the uh, energy businesses. Uh, There is some concern, though, with where capital investment is at compared to where it was at eight or nine years ago. And obviously, there's concern about the impact of inflation and the response to inflation, higher interest rates, how that's going to impact Alberta. So, yeah, there's some challenges on the horizon. But at the moment, you know, things are are recovering well in Alberta. Businesscouncilab.com. You can read more there. Well, back in 2019, uh, Jason Kenney promised uh, that if elected, he would establish uh, a war room of sorts to uh, respond to critics of Alberta's oil and gas industry uh, to help bring a, a different message to the table. And obviously, he followed through on that promise. The Canadian Energy Center was born. Uh, but as we get set to crown a new premier later this year, there's some question about uh, whether we'll continue with this approach. So it's an interesting moment for the Canadian Energy Centre in that, I suppose, there was an open question about its future. Uh, perhaps then, maybe due to that concern, the Canadian Energy Centre has hired a U.S. crisis management firm uh, to, to perhaps better tell its story or respond to uh, certain forms of coverage. Counterpoint Strategies is the company. 
uh, that's been contracted by the Canadian Energy Center, reported this week by the TAI, uh, documents registered uh, with the U.S. Department of Justice, where this information was gleaned. CounterPoint explains on its website that it works with clients that are being threatened in the public discourse. They say that no- modern news media is hostile, aggressive, and willing to disregard standards and collude with almost any antagonist. They advertise a counter-adversarial strategy. They say we can stop hostile coverage in its tracks. Well, joining us to talk about this contract specifically, some of the bigger questions about whether Albertans are getting value for their uh, dollars when it comes to the Canadian Energy Centre is the managing director, the CEO of the Canadian Energy Centre. Tom Olson joins us on the line here this afternoon. Tom, welcome to the program. Rob, thank you so much. Okay, so uh, tell us more then, why the need to to reach out to this CounterPoint strategies? What can you tell us about this contract? Yeah, I can tell you all about that. It's publicly disclosed documents on the uh, Foreign Agency Registration um, Act that we're um, compelled to sign up to. As you know, because I sent you the website, um, they've done some work for us uh, that that we call matter-of-fact. So when there is uh, misinformation posted, like on the website, there's some information from Greenpeace, we will go through it, and we, uh, using facts, will actually clarify what the truth is. So the hyperbole aside of, on their website, the Thai story aside, which is a extreme left-wing anti-oil and gas organization, we have them on a three-month contract to help us uh, get our message across in the United States. Now, it's a very small part of the American campaign. I'm sure you're going to ask me about this. Uh, $7.7 million into the United States to talk about security of supply and to tell the president uh, and other interested parties that you don't need to go to Saudi Arabia or others for your oil and gas needs. We're right here. We're right next door. We have high ESG standards. There's a constant pressure, downward pressure on environmental uh, issues. Um, Look north for energy security. Uh, $7.7 million reached millions and millions of Americans, more than 1.4 hits on the website. That is in tandem with the national campaign that we have going, which we have committed $6 million to, and we will extend that. Many of your listeners and probably some of your readers in the Calgary Herald will have seen our ads. It's about uh, if Canadian oil and gas had a label. You would find out all these great things about about the expenditure on green tech, about how uh, indigenous opportunities exist. All of these things that people across the country we have determined uh, because they tell us want to know. So, sure, we can talk about the $120,000 contract raised by the TAI, or we can talk about the significant work that we've been doing for a significant amount of time about the last two years. Okay, so $120,000, you say, so that's what, for, for this year? That's that's in total? That's a, that's a three-month contract out of $7.7 million. $20,000. Now, I mean, you mentioned the TAI. I mean, the TAI is what it is, but, I mean, they reported this. I mean, do Albertans have to go to either the TAI or these, these foreign registry websites to learn this information? This isn't something that, that was disclosed on, on the Canadian Energy Center website, was it? Uh, you know, this information is publicly available, Rob. Anyone can get it. The TAI got it. Why didn't you get it? I mean, you're a journalist. 
How did you miss yeah. it? You got to get your information on the site. And actually, it probably came from Greenpeace because we have essentially a Greenpeace activist assigned to us full time. He is watching us all the time. He is out there trying to get journalists to do stories on it. Probably spinning you up for all I know. That's where it came from, Rob. So it's out there. Uh, yeah. they but, don't but, but, but you I haven't disclosed. More, I want to tell you a little more about Farah. We uh, filled out that registration, and we report in to the Department of Justice. They, we, everything is watched very closely, everything we do, everything this organization does. So I would encourage you, Rob, you're, the, the purpose of this call was a very uninformed column that you wrote in the Calgary Herald that talked about our Twitter game on the Canadian Energy Center Twitter site. And you know what? You're right. We don't have much of a Twitter game on the CEC because, you know what? I don't like Twitter. But we have social media channels attached to a main website and six microsites. We reach more than two and a half million people a month. We reach hundreds, we reach millions of Canadians, millions of Americans. We're into Europe recently, and it's all about the message of security of supply. The International Energy Agency talks about demand for oil and gas that will increase till 2050. There's 26% renewables expected by 2050, 52% oil and gas. That should come here from Canada. In Europe, they're talking about rationing gas for the winter. They're, talk, they're talking about auctioning gas for the winter. We need to step up to be a part of that solution, and that's what we are doing. Okay. Well, Tom, and I just wanted to get these questions addressed so we can move on to these other issues, but unfortunately, we just have to keep circling back to this. So, okay, $120,000 you've now acknowledged. This three-month contract with CounterPoint Strategies was not disclosed on the Canadian Energy Center website, but as you say, is, is posted elsewhere, uh, so those documents do exist. What is the work that this organization is providing? What are you, what are we, by extension, getting for this $120,000? Oh, Rob. Um, well, I'll tell you, because I, I, I did send you the information. Um, there's the website where your uh, listeners can go to. And um, it's matteroffact.com. And you can see the work that they've done. And they also provide us with a daily report on the media questions and the media stories, the narratives in the United States. And they lead some of the social media response on our behalf. Again, fact-based narratives. Uh, why was it deemed necessary? Part of, this is a part of the American campaign that we think is immensely important, where you have a uh, president and administration on one hand, saying to uh, places like Saudi Arabia, other OPEC countries, give us more oil and gas, when in fact we're right here, right next door, it just doesn't make any sense. So that is a very small part of a 7.7 million campaign. And, and by the way, I'll tell you this, some of the uh, research I've seen talks about the Americans. The Americans, for one thing, they don't think, they, they would like to be energy self-sufficient, full stop, uh, produce their own oil and gas. Um, in the event that they need to import, they want it from Canada. And uh, we are making that point over and over and over that we have the highest ESG standards. Canada, right next door, friends, allies, we're here to help. Okay, well, I mean, if you want to make that point or you want to talk about what I wrote, um, let's, let's explore it this way. Because um, what you're saying is obviously indistinguishable from the message from the Alberta government 
from the uh, Alberta Energy Department. It's indistinguishable from what we get from CAP, the Association of Petroleum Producers, other organizations. Canada Actions, uh, another group with a similar message. Uh, the point I was raising in that column is that when it came to the controversy involving the F1 driver, the shots at the uh, Alberta oil sands, that your response was slower than the Alberta uh, energy ministers. It echoed the Alberta energy ministers. It reached fewer people than the Alberta energy ministers. So what void is the Canadian Energy Centre providing, given all of these other organizations and voices that have a, a much larger reach for one thing and i mean your organization was supposed to be at arm's length from the government why are we getting an echoing message here well a couple things rob uh, first of all our, our message on twitter was not the same as the energy ministers secondly i'm not sure you're hearing what i'm saying i mean part of what we do and part of what we've always been meant to do it was uh we we took us some time to get into it because of uh covid was marketing. Uh, a constant rain always soaks. And we are out there digitally uh, through newspapers, digital sites, uh, television, with a constant message advocating on behalf of oil and gas. We need all of these voices to do the same thing. Uh, in, as a matter of fact, you probably know this because you're right on top of things. CAP just put out uh, a new campaign themselves. Um, and it's about basically the same thing, that it's Canada is the solution for the world. There is no doubt there's going to be demand for many decades. And I want to say this, uh, myself and this agency wholly embrace, uh, wholly, wholly embrace renewables. Um, we have, in, in fact, Alberta is becoming a destination for that. So you've got uh, wind, you've got solar, you've got small uh, modular nuclear, you have hydrogen, but the reality is, again, from the IEA, oil and gas are going to be required for a very long time. So we need to uh, make those voices loud. We are a loud voice. Uh, we are able to get into uh, around the world, frankly. As I was saying, we were in uh, Germany and other parts of Europe during the G7, again, with information about oil and gas, uh, how Canada could step up to help deal with the uh, European uh, issues there, the European crisis. As I said before, there's warnings that there is going to be um, uh, gas shortages, rationing. So, uh, you know, we are a, a part of a network of organizations that need to get out there. And I got to tell you what, we uh, we do a lot of work. Um, there's 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 a couple of mythologies in across Canada into the states around Europe around Indigenous involvement. And we do, Indigenous bands are involved very heavily, many of them, in oil and gas projects. In fact, I was speaking during Stampede uh, at an event that we co-sponsored, Canadian Energy Centre. I think it was $4,000. Uh, it was put on by Indigenous businesses. And I was speaking to a chief there, a female chief from the West Coast, who said, this is the pathway out of prosperity. I'm not sure what's going on with these ENGOs who want to shut this down. They want to sentence my people to poverty. So that's what we're doing, Rob, and okay. we're Tom, doing the, a when, great when the job, premier, and we're continuing okay. to do it. I'm trying to clarify a point here, then. The, the premier, when, when the Premier announced the creation of the Canadian Energy Centre, he said he was creating a fully staffed rapid response war room. Is rapid response no longer a part of your mandate, then? Oh, no, huge part. Uh, we do matter of facts that are very well received. Um, we send uh, material out on uh, social media 
we we do the goal is something comes up in the morning we're on it right away big part of it uh, research also a big part of it what are the things about us we get a lot of attention from uh, you know NGOs uh, Greenpeace as I mentioned before so we got to be bulletproof in what we do and uh, so we are we uh, have a, a crack research team um, a lot of uh, organizations individuals will draw from our research um, so that's a big part of it uh, communications advocacy we advocate as I said on behalf of the industry so no all of those elements are still there but okay. from the beginning there was always going to be a big marketing component um, up to 80% of our budget would be spent on marketing and, uh, and, and, and you know and initially obviously there was some time of getting your footing there was some some missteps some apologies some some correcting of the record did, did that damage your credibility and if if this message is going to be widely received isn't credibility isn't independence a crucial part of that oh rob independence I'm, what, what are you talking about i'm an arms length government agency i'm independent i i make the shots i call the shots i within the the mandate of what we're supposed to do which is to advocate on behalf of uh, uh canadian energy to a world that wants responsibly produced energy that's what we do. I mean, if you want to talk about what happened two and a half years ago, yes, we stumbled. Uh, for sure we did. Absolutely. Uh, two and a half years ago. And then COVID hit, and we recalibrated, and we looked at what we've been doing. You might notice, Rob, that we don't get any media because, I would argue, we're doing good work. And what happened in this conversation is you did not call me when you were writing a column. So I called you and said, Rob, interesting column you're right to make that point. There's some other things you might want to know about what we do at the Canadian Energy Centre. And so to that end, I appreciate uh, being on the call with you. Initially, the budget for the Canadian Energy Centre was set at $30 million a year. That was reduced when COVID hit. Some of that's been restored. It's, it's not apparent anywhere exactly what that figure is. I think the minister had mentioned in the legislature at one point that it was now $12 million. Can you provide us some clarity on that? <laughs> yeah, I sure can, Rob. And in fact, it's on our website in our annual reports. And I'll tell you a little anecdote. Uh, we uh, have very vigorous audits from the Auditor General, which I'm supportive of. I mean, you know, they, they test every contract. And a member of the Auditor General's office said to me one time, it might have been after one of your columns, who knows, don't your critics know how to read financials? And I said, well, I don't know if they do or not, but, you know, it serves them not to. So let well, me tell you. What is the you, number, though, Tom? Let, let me tell you. I'm, I'm getting there, Rob. I'm getting there. Oh, by the way, I did send you this information uh, last time you and I talked on the radio, but you still talked about $30 million. So here we go. First year, we spent $1.9 million. No, but uh, what is the, the current annual budget of the Second Canadian year, Energy Center? We spent 3.9. Oh, Third year. We had a $12 million budget. We fold over uh, about $5 million of that that we didn't spend last year. We have right now a $17 million budget. I anticipate spending $23 million on these global campaigns around the world, promoting Canada as the source for responsibly produce energy to the world. As I mentioned at the outset, there's been some discussion of the future of the Canadian Energy Centre and the UCP leadership race. There seem to be some candidates that suggest maybe it's time for a different approach. Is uh, any of this uh, aggressive strategy in the Canadian Energy Centre's part uh, a reflection of that? How concerned are you that the Canadian Energy Centre is, is still going to be there after this year? 
Oh, I'm, I'm not. That's not got anything to do with me. We have a job to do. Every day we come in, we do a job. Um, there's no new aggressive strategy, Rob. We've been doing this for two years. You just haven't noticed because I flagged it when you wrote that column. That's why we're having this conversation. And I appreciate it because I want to get our message out there. But don't misunderstand. We've been doing this for two years. So, mm-hmm. you know, happy to be able to talk to you about it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, Tom, thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Rob, an absolute pleasure. All the best. There you go. Tom Olson uh, with the Canadian Energy Centre. My name is Rob Breckenridge. We're back with more right after this. So it was a week ago today that we got the first images from the James Webb Space Telescope. Uh, the first was actually released on, on the Monday last week and the rest the day after. And it was incredible. The James Webb Space Telescope, which is meant to replace, it's kind of the evolution of, um, you know, what was the Hubble Telescope, now the next generation, was launched on Christmas, and we got the first images last week, as mentioned, and it was amazing, right? And so there was a lot of hype about this telescope, what it would allow us to see and do and learn, and, you know, the first images showed that, yeah, that wasn't just hype. That's, that's the reality. The first image we saw, it's uh, what's called a deep field image. So basically, the explanation is that if you took a grain of sand and held it out at arm's length, that's the patch of sky that the telescope is zoomed in on, basically. And the detail in that was incredible. And some researchers said that, you know, a couple had looked at that, that similar patch of sky before, but this latest image revealed thousands more galaxies than expected. So the detail of that, just just truly unbelievable. So that was the first one we saw. We also saw an image of what's known as uh, Stephen's Quintet. Lies in the Pegasus constellation, about 290 million light years from Earth. Uh, it's, it's five galaxies that are pretty tightly bound. So it makes for quite an, an interesting image. Each of those galaxies uh, has as many as 100 billion stars. So that was uh, the second image. That was pretty incredible. Then what's known as the Southern Ring Nebula. It's a cloud of gas, almost shaped like a figure eight. It's gas and dust, basically, about 2,500 light years from Earth, and it's the leftover debris of a massive dying star. Uh, The belief is that, you know, this could someday be where we see new stars or planets form. So studying this, obviously, there's there's some some benefit there. Uh, Another image of what's uh, referred to as WASP-96b. This is an exoplanet, pretty big exoplanet, located about 1,100 light years from Earth. About half the mass of Jupiter, it operates, uh, or rather it orbits so close to its star that a year on the planet is about three and a half Earth days. Now, it's not a planet believed to harbor life, but the image actually reveals water vapor in the planet's atmosphere. So it's a pretty, you know, close look at a planet that's uh, well outside of uh, our solar system, 1,100 light years away. Uh, And then there was also the uh, Carina Nebula, as it's known. Uh, clouds of dust and gas uh, had to be uh, kind of cut through with the powerful camera. This is about 7,600 light years from Earth. It's the most active star formation region known to scientists. The best known of those stars is one that's estimated to be 100 times more massive than our sun, maybe one of our galaxy's most massive stars. So already this is what we're seeing thanks to the James Webb Space Telescope. So the hype is real. There was obviously a lot of excitement uh, last week. Someone who was watching all of this very closely 
And we spoke with him back in December when the Space Telescope was launched. He's got some time allotted on the Space Telescope in early 2023. Adam Muzzin is assistant professor at the York University Department of Physics and Astronomy. He joins us on the line here this afternoon. Professor Muzzin, great to have you back with us. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Great to be here. Obviously, so much had to go right for us to be sitting here talking about this today. The launch, uh, you know, there were there were a lot of uh, pins and needles everyone was sitting on then uh, and then awaiting these first images. And, and we saw them last week. And uh, man, oh, man, really seemed to surpass expectations. Even let me just get your initial impressions on, on what that was like last week. Uh, one of the greatest moments of my life. That was uh, absolutely fabulous to see this stuff. And indeed, you know, um, from the professional standpoint, I've read the uh, report on the observatory, and in almost every single category that uh, they've measured its performance, it is performing better than average, better than expected. And so we're just, you know, couldn't be more elated at at, uh, at how it's performing. Right. Any from the layman's perspective, and I, I saw some of the images last week where they're comparing what the James Webb Telescope is able to do versus Hubble, which was obviously quite something in, in its time. Uh, but just talk about how, from from your perspective, how, how different it is, how advanced we now are in, in terms of what we're able to do going from Hubble now to, to the James Webb Space Telescope. I mean, it's a considerable leap. Um, but I think, you know, one of the things, if you watch the broadcast of the new images, is that they emphasize this. This is really just the tip of the iceberg. So a lot of the stuff you saw from James Webb um, last week is, you know, not very long exposures. It's some of the initial data. Um, and it's already, <laughs> you know, multiple times better than Hubble. Um, and, you know, we're, we're a few weeks into taking science data. And so as we continue to build up these images, you know, as these build up, more and more longer exposures over time, um, you know, it will be a hundred times better than Hubble. And so you will, you as you see stuff, you know, a few months from now, a year from now, it will be even better, be remarkably better than the stuff you saw, which was already considerably better than what Hubble can do. So those first images, uh, what, what was significant about them in terms of why those particular images were, were selected, what it was that, uh, you know, initially we're looking at through through the James Webb Telescope? Was this to, to give us an illustration of what it's capable of, or was, the, was there a deeper purpose to these initial images? Well, they're definitely science images, and I think um, you know there's already you know exciting things we've we've learned um, from the images, all the extra detail. Um, but you know, one of the things that wasn't focused on that you know I can't help it because I'm a nerd is um, these were all the initial images which were shown to the public because um, they look beautiful and sure. they're great to look at. Um, but one of the things that the observatory does that is absolutely incomparable is uh, spectroscopy, which is um, dividing the light up like through a prism and figuring out what objects are made of. And a lot of that was done. It wasn't shown to the public because it doesn't look beautiful. Um, but I can tell you that looking at some of the initial spectroscopy from James Webb has been astounding. We have already seen galaxies that we have never seen before. We've already measured some of their properties. We've seen that baby galaxies in the universe have very, very little complex uh, chemistry, all sorts of amazing stuff that's going on behind the scenes, not just the images. And I think uh, in the long run, when you start to see all that kind of science come out, it's going to be mind-boggling uh, what we've learned scientifically from the observatory. Right, and it's not obviously that we're looking uh, far. We're, we're looking far back, right? I mean, this is space and time. We're, we're looking through. So some of those images we see, you know, we're seeing the uh, universe as it was billions of years ago. So having a, a better glimpse at that, what, what can we learn from that? Yeah, well, so from my, you know, my point of view, which is uh, studying 
uh, young galaxies, you know, we're really seeing the very, very first stages of galaxies forming, you know, and the, you know, the comparison would be, you know, you know, studying, say, a child being born, we're really looking at those like embryonic states where you have like the the few cells, uh, you know, dividing at the beginning. And so much is set in, of course, in human development in that phase. And that's kind of what we're learning from galaxies is seeing like the very, very first stars in those galaxies form and what that looks like. And that's not something we could have ever known until we built the James Webb Space Telescope. So once you have some access to it, and and you know what what is it that uh, you intend to to get from this? What what is it that you you know you really think we have an opportunity to learn here? Yeah. So my own research, I I, I do have telescope time on the telescope. It's going to come in around January or February. So call me back then. Um, but what we're looking at is um, the biggest galaxies in the universe um, are these things called giant elliptical galaxies, and we think they form very, very early on in the history of the universe, although we've never really been able to, to see them. And so we have time to go basically look at these uh, objects in the very, very early universe. And as I talked about, take a spectra of these and really figure out, you know, how they can form so many stars so fast early on in the history of the universe, which is something that we've just never really been able um, to understand. And so we're really, really looking forward to getting that data in, uh, in January and February. Right, and obviously, you know, there's there's a lot to understand about how this all happens, and, and a lot of that is uh, on the physics side, obviously, but a lot of it is what we can observe through this telescope. What's the process of kind of marrying all of that, our understanding uh, of, you know, these, these basic physics, uh, parts of it we don't understand in terms of what uh, builds the universe, keeps the universe together, expands the universe, and then taking, you know, the observable side of it from, from this telescope? Yeah, well, you're absolutely right on. And particularly for myself, you know, for the study of galaxies, computer simulations are obviously an, an essential thing. Um, you know, the physics of galaxies are ridiculously complex if you break it down. You think about it, galaxies are filled with billions of stars. They're filled with billions of planets. They're filled with tons of gas, dark matter, all this stuff that reacts, you know, in all these nonlinear ways that one can't calculate with a pen and paper. And so, you know, the process really, as, as you said, it is, you know, we, we go to computers, we simulate, you know, if the physics of the universe of, you know, the early galaxies is this, what might they look like? And you can come up with simulated pictures. And then we go to the James Webb telescope and we say, you know, do galaxies actually look like we predict? And, you know, yes or no. And, and you know, we will see, you know, galaxies and we'll go back to the computer simulations and say, well, you know, maybe it was kind of the same, but it's different. And we need to modify the physics that we understand in order to create galaxies in a computer that look like the galaxies we see in the telescope. And that's really how you yeah. elucidate the physics. There's some, I don't know if it's philosophical elements to all of this, just from, from our understanding as humans of, of what else is out there. And I mean, we already knew at some level how vast the universe was. This is helping us to see that for ourselves, as you alluded to, you know, the billions of galaxies and everything those galaxies, galaxies contain. That question of, you know, why are we here? Who are we? Are we alone? Does it, does it help shape our understanding of that? Or is that a process that, that kind of occurs almost at, at a different level removed from this? Well, it's a good question. I think it's different for everyone. I think as an astronomer, for example, I'm acutely aware of that. But I think one of the amazing things about James Webb is, and I encourage all your listeners to do this, you know, Google NASA, download some of these images, you know, these really high resolution images that, you know, take your computer two or three minutes to download 
And you can move around in the image and you can see thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of galaxies in there. And it does, you know, help you get that perspective of, oh, wow, you know, the Milky Way has billions of stars. And then when I look around, there's just thousands of galaxies. It, it certainly does um, give you a different perspective, you know, on your own existence. And I think bringing that to the public with James Webb is a really fantastic thing to do, you know. Absolutely. Well, you know, I say, say here we are in the middle of summer. I don't know how many people are looking forward to January, but I know you certainly are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, absolutely. That's going to be incredible. Well, uh, you know, we certainly look forward to touching base with you there at that point once you've had an opportunity to, to make use of this remarkable tool for yourself and look forward to uh, seeing what else this uh, telescope delivers in terms of these, uh, you know, just jaw dropping images. It's been incredible so far. We'll leave it there. Adam Muzzin, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Really do appreciate this. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. All right, there you go. Adam Muzzin, uh, York University, Department of Physics and Astronomy, and uh, very much looking forward to early in the new year when he gets the opportunity to make use of the James Webb Space Telescope. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.